fact that I believe many of you could identify with. A life filled with highs and lows, bad and good. One of the first things that we learn about Esther is that when Esther was young, her mom and her dad die. And she is left as an orphan. And so she immediately starts as bad. But then her older cousin, Mordecai, adopts her into his house and becomes as a father to her. And so we see good. She wins the Be a Queen for Life contest in the empire of Persia, which seems pretty good. Then a decree is issued against all of her people. That they will be annihilated, wiped from the history books as though they have never lived rock bottom. And now she has been beckoned by her cousin Mordecai, by the one that has raised her as though he were her father, to go before the king on behalf of her people. And she is at this terrifying place. Where we left last week, Esther had already endeavored to do so and has said that she was going to do it by throwing a series of parties. And so she knows that her man loves to party. And and just like every good wife, knowing the way to the the, uh, heart of her husband, she throws a party. But she decides she wants to bring him double honor and throw him a second party. And so she doesn't reveal her request to him in the first party. Instead, she waits. And we know now, looking at last week, that all of that was providential. God lining up the timing of this thing in a way that only he can through the circumstances of life, through the ordinary means of providence. And so this morning we come. We are there at the moment of truth, the moment in which she will ask the question, which she will bring her request before the king to pardon her people, to destroy their enemy. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, this is the most important moment in Esther's life. Everything is hanging in the balance. Stand with me as we read God's word together. We will be in Esther chapter 7 this morning. We'll actually start in uh, verse 6. 14, but then we'll read through the end of chapter 7, and this will be our last week in the book of Esther. Esther chapter 7, verse 1, sa- or chapter 6, verse 14 says, While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy. The wicked Haman. The Haman, then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. And Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, 
Moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. So when we come to chapter 7, perhaps the thing that jumps out at me most, and perhaps the same thing that jumped out at you most, is how oblivious the king seems to be to all of this, right? The king has, has had a decree go out in his name with his signet ring having sealed it, that says that all of the Jews in all of the kingdom will be annihilated, will be wiped from the earth, and all of their goods will be plundered. Literally everything that they are will be gone. And the king is so indifferent that he doesn't even know about it. Remember when, in chapter 2 when Haman brings this proposal to the king, he, it's very much in a veiled sense, and he just says a certain people. The king has no idea what people, he has no idea who, he has no idea what. He just says, all right, that's fine with me, go on. The author of Esther is being sure that we understand what a foolish king this is. What a ridiculous man this is. Well, nonetheless, when he hears that, that not only is, are the Jews going to be annihilated, but his very own queen, Queen Esther, is herself a Jew and will be to, to die along with all of her people, the sense of judgment, uh, justice, whatever that is in King Ahasuerus is sparked. And he is incensed and he is angered. And he says, who is this? Who is this? I've, I've read this week that if, if, you can, uh, pro- if you could properly pronounce the Hebrew language, when you get to verse 5 and it says, who is he and where is he and who has dared to do this? It would actually sound like machine gun fire. It's so rapid and its, in, it's intent is to, to drive home into the minds of the readers the anger of the king. Now, imagine being Haman. Imagine being Haman right here. Do you, do you remember when you were like maybe a teenager and you kind of having a pretty good day? Maybe you had a decent day at school or school's out and you just come kind of bebopping into the living room and mom and dad are sitting and you know it's just not good. And all of a sudden your countenance changes and, and your stomach falls and your mind starts racing like what did I do? How did I blow this? I think that's kind of where Haman is. Haman's come to the party as the exclusive guest of Queen Esther and King Ahasuerus. This is the good day. He probably believes, knowing what we know from chapter 6, that he's going to have a statue of himself unveiled right here. And not only will people have to bow down to him, they'll bow down to his statue. So, oh, Haman is sitting there and he's listening to the, to the queen, talking to the king, perhaps not even, perhaps even half-heartedly. When all of a sudden, the king says, who is responsible for that? And Esther says, the evil Haman is responsible. Imagine how he would have wanted to climb under the table in an instant. The king, in his wrath, bursts out of the room and storms out of the room. And Haman, at this point, is in a lose-lose. Does he follow after the king and perhaps get his head cut off right there? Or does he do what no man should do and stay close to the wife of the king? See, the Persians, they took their wives seriously. The Persian king took his wife especially seriously. A man was not even allowed to be within seven steps of the king's harem. And what do we have with Haman? 
We have Haman on the couch with the queen herself. Begging, pleading that she might go to the king on his behalf to spare his life. The king comes back in and he sees Haman on the couch with his woman. And it's more than he can bear. And he says essentially, you're going to come after my wife now? You're going to come after my wife? Who do you think he is? He is to be executed. Now, it just so happened that there were a fresh set of gallows just built. And where were those gallows built? They were built in the backyard of Haman himself. He had built the gallows. And you can imagine that the gallows were casting a shadow over his house. And they bring this to the attention of the king. And he says, hang him there. Now, what does this mean for us this morning? I want to kind of start at the end of the story, of, uh, at the end of chapter 7, and then we're going to come back to the end, but I think, back to the beginning, but I think the, the end kind of helps us frame up what's going on so that we can understand and, and see this and kind of leave today with a, with a challenge for ourselves. What I want us to see is that Haman's death reminds us that our God is alive, that in the death of Haman we see the life of God, that God is alive. Now remember what has been at stake the whole time. Ever since this decree has been issued, what has been at stake? Everything has been at stake, right? Everything. Every prophecy that God has give out, given out. Every covenant that God has made with his people. Every promise that God has promised his people. All of them are hanging in the balance of whether or not God can keep his covenants. Whether or not God can fulfill his prophecies. Whether or not God can back up his promises. So in fact, not only are the prophecies of God and the promises of God and the covenants of God at stake, but God himself is at stake. For how weak would a God be that cannot back up his word? How weak would a God be that cannot fulfill his covenants to his people? The question has been, is the God of Israel alive or not? Is the God of Israel God or not? Is he sovereign or not? Is he in control or not? Now the whole time, Haman has seemed to have had the upper hand, hasn't he? Haman has money. Haman has power. He gets a rubber stamp from the king anytime that he wants one. He has the prominence. He has the ability to carry out what he has wanted to carry out. And the Jews are weak. The Jews have no ability to defend themselves. So this whole time, it appears as though Haman has the upper hand. That is until when? Until all of a sudden the king can't sleep. Until all of a sudden in the Lord's providential timing, he causes insomnia to come upon the team, the, the king, and the tables begin to turn. And now what do we see? We see that he's dead. This man that was coming after the Jews, this man that was going to slaughter the Jews, this man that was going to annihilate the Jews, he himself is slaughtered. He himself is annihilated. Only proving what? That no man can come against the Lord. No king can come against the Lord. No authority can challenge his authority. That all of the weapons of earth are no threat to the throne of God because our God is a living God. Throughout the scriptures, this is how God distinguishes himself from other gods. Just this past week, I was reading in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And God speaks through Moses to his people and he says this. He says, 
you're going to worship gods that are carved out of wood or made out of stone or melted out of gold. But they can't hear you. And they can't see you. And they can't breathe and eat and know and think. They're all creations of your own imagination. They're all creations of your own hands. But the Lord, the Lord is not indifferent to you. The Lord is not indifferent to your needs. The Lord is not indifferent to your predicament. The Lord hears and the Lord sees and the Lord loves and the Lord knows. And the Lord will bring to pass the deliverance of his people into their promised land. You see, this is the difference between our God and every other God of history. That our God is, in fact, the living God. That our God is, in fact, a God that can say something and then accomplish it. That our God is, in fact, a God that hears us when we cry out to him. That our God is a God that, in fact, answers us and can preserve us and that can use us for his glory and evil for his glory. That our God is a living God. Should bring us all the hope in the world this morning. And what we see reminded in the death of Haman, we see confirmed in Jesus' defeat of death. Why would God choose resurrection to redeem his people? Have you ever thought about that? Why would God choose resurrection for the redemption of his people? Why is it that out of all the ways that perhaps God could have willed to do it, and I, I'm not broad enough to perhaps imagine that, that any way that God could have done it, but God, before the foundations of the earth, set a particular path of redemption, a particular path of condemnation even, and this is what it is. There is death, there is life, God controls, controls them both. And so he uses resurrection to show that he, in fact, is the living God. That he, in fact, is the author of life. That he is the ruler of death. That there is nothing, not even death, can be a threat to him. And so we are reminded in Haman's death that God is a living God. Just as we are confirmed in Jesus' defeat of death that God is a living God. Now throughout the series, one of the things that we've said is that God uses his providence to work all things together for the good of his people. Man, that's encouraging for us, isn't it? For those of us that are in Christ, for those of us that have been saved, for those of us that have been called out of the dark and into the light, it is joyful news to know that all of the circumstances of life, all of the brokenness in the world even, is used together for our good. But I want to add a layer to that. Not only does God take and use all things to get work all things together for the good of his people, but he also takes and works all things together for the destruction of his enemies. The destruction of his enemies. Haman seemed to be a formidable opponent to the people of God. He seemed to be a sincere and genuine threat to him. But what Haman discovered is the same thing that every enemy of the people of God, and when you are an enemy of the people of God, you are by default an enemy of God himself. And he discovered what every enemy of the people of God have always discovered, and that is, is that they cannot triumph. That God will always destroy them. God will always defeat them. And one day, all of our enemies... Those that we can see, those that we can't see. Those that we know about and those that we can't even fathom. All of them will come to their ultimate destruction. Have you ever wondered why there's evil in the world? Perhaps you wonder, why, why do we have opponents at all? 
Why is it that sometimes I have, to, I have to deal with this brokenness in my life? Why is it that sometimes I have to face against such evil and wickedness in my own life as God's children? You know why? 2 Peter 3.9 says it's because God is patient and long-suffering. The only reason that evil still exists is that the only way that God could wipe evil from the world is to create everything that is evil. And that is all of us, brothers and sisters. That is every person that has ever lived. As Romans 3 says, none are good, not one. But God, in his grace, has tarried his coming. God, in his grace, has, has, has delayed his return to the earth. At that point, though, all of the enemies of God will be destroyed. And this morning, if you are not in Christ, understand that it will be your undoing as well. Understand that it will be you putting yourself against the Lord and your righteousness against his righteousness and your holiness against his holiness and you will find your ultimate destruction. But God has been patient. God has been long-suffering and I call on you this morning to turn to the Lord, to turn to the living God, to turn to the God that has been resurrected from the grave for your, on your behalf. Now, going back to the beginning of chapter 7, why, what if things had went differently? What if when Esther goes to the king and she makes his case, her case before him, what if he had rejected her? Now, you can imagine Esther's predicament, can't you? You can imagine the emotions that are going through her mind. You can imagine the, the fear that she has. Here we have Esther, and she is at, at the oldest early 20s most likely a teenager and she has been to, and she has been charged with the responsibility to go before the king on behalf of all of her people and understand what she's doing she is willfully bringing herself under the wrath of the king she is willfully bringing herself under the decree of the king that already says all the jews will be wiped out she has lived faithfully as an apparent pagan in the harem of the king Nobody knows that she is a, is a, is a Jew. But now she's going to unveil herself. Now she is going to tell the king, and interceding for her people, she will bring herself under his wrath. You see the picture of Jesus there? Isn't that what Jesus does? That Jesus loves his church. Jesus knows his church. And so what Jesus does is he willfully and intentionally brings himself under the wrath of God, under the wrath of the king, that it might be abated on our behalf, that he might intercede for us, that he might go and mediate between us and God, that we could be reconciled with him. Esther points us to the greater Esther. But just imagine, imagine her, a teenage girl, which, by the way, is proof that our teenagers can handle serious responsibility. All right, teenagers have the same hormones, the same struggles, the same stuff now as they did in Esther's day. Don't let them off the hook. We have her as a teenage girl going before the king. Imagine the butterflies in her stomach. Imagine how her, her voice was quivering. Imagine how her hands were shaking, how her knees felt weak and limp. This morning, I want you to understand, we will all face moments like this. We will all face moments like this. We will all face moments in which our, our hands shake and our voice quiver, our voice, qu voices quiver and our knees are weak. We will all face moments of faith 
in fact, perhaps crisis of faith in which it is either live or die, stand or cower. Because you see, the people of God cannot stay hidden. The people of God cannot remain hidden in a pagan culture. Too many of us are doing that. We live in a pagan culture, brothers and sisters. We live in a secular culture. We live in a culture that says right is left and west is east. We live in a culture that, that has no idea the darkness in which they live. How is it that so many lights are living unassuming and undercover? No, the people of God at some point will have to face down the culture. The church of Christ will have to face down the culture. This moment will come. And your knees will go weak and your hands will shake and your voice will quiver. But nonetheless, the moment will be there. And what I want you to understand this morning is what I think we see in Esther. Is what many of you seasoned saints already know. Is that, op that moments of fear are opportunities of faith. That opportunities of faith most often occur in great moments of fear. Think about what Esther's two options are here. Esther has two options. Esther can either, either listen to her, her butterflies and her weak knees and her quivering voice and back down. She could have just changed the request at the last second, couldn't she? Sure, she's got the king in the party. The king has said, you can have anything up to half the kingdom. Perhaps she would just say, all right, that sounds good. I'll take half the kingdom. She could have lost her nerve at the last second. Isn't that what we so often do? She could have cowered down at the end. Or... She could have hope that her God is the living God. That her God will deliver her Jew, the Jews. That her God is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping, prophecy-fulfilling God. And that he would come through for her. You see, you don't know anything about your faith until it's tested. It's in moments of fear that you really know who you are in Christ. Fear is faith-revealing. Fear is faith-revealing. Everybody in church believes in God. Everybody in church worships Jesus. Everybody in church professes faith in Christ. Everybody at youth camp in a couple of weeks thinks Jesus is awesome and worth their lives. Everybody thinks that. It's when it costs you something that you learn about the depth of your faith. It's when it costs you something. It's when it can cost you your job whether or not you learn about the depth of your faith. You've got a, a boss pushing you to do unethical things. What will you do in that moment? Is your faith, are you all in or not? Is, is God sovereign over that or not? You've got people at the lunchroom table. And you know that if you speak up, you're going to be ridiculed. You know that if you speak up, you're going to start being lonely on Friday nights. Will you speak up or not? You're going to be at work. And you know that if you take a stand for Christ, that everybody else will alienate you. That all of a sudden, you'll, you'll be coming to work all alone, all the time. Will you take a stand or not? You see, it's in moments of fear that we have opportunities of faith. It's in moments of fear that we have opportunities to show whether or not we take Christ seriously. Whether or not he truly has all of our hearts and all of our lives. Because it is fear that reveals what we trust. Do we trust in our job? 
Do we trust in our paycheck? Do we trust in our marriage? Do we trust in our popularity? Do we trust in our position in the community? What do we trust in? Or do we trust in the living God? In the resurrected Savior? In whom do we trust? Moments of faith most often occur in moments of fear. And so what I want you to hear me say is do not let weak knees talk you out of faithfulness. Do not let weak knees talk you into cowardice. Do not let weak knees keep you off of the mission field. Do not let weak knees convince you that evangelism is optional. Do not let weak knees keep you from teaching in the classroom. Do not let weak knees keep you from praying with your wife and discipling your children. No, weak knees are not an excuse. Weak knees are a reminder that we are infinitely weak people in need of an infinitely powerful and living God. Let your weak knees remind you and push you and promote you toward Christ. This is what Paul learned. Paul, speaking of his his weakness in the flesh, of his thorn in the flesh, he quotes Jesus as saying, My grace is sufficient. In your weakness I am made strong. Brothers and sisters, your weakness is not an excuse. Your weakness is an opportunity. Too many of us are backing down and cowering down because we feel a little uncomfortable. Too many of us are not stepping up because, frankly, we just don't trust. And our faith is not passing the test. The depth of our our faith is proving to be shallow. Look at your giving record. Who do you trust? Look at your evangelism over the last year. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? You trust yourself? You trust the Lord. You trust his promises. I wonder sometimes how many God moments I've missed in my life. I wonder sometimes how many great movements of God I've missed out on. Because I was afraid. Because my, weak, my knees were weak, because my voice was quivering, because my hands were shaking. I wonder how many times I didn't do what God was calling me to do because I couldn't see the other side. Because I was afraid of how it might end up. I was afraid of all of the, the variables of that, that over which I had no control. And the reason that I wonder that so often is because of what I know to be true. And that's the inverse. Is that every great movement of God in my life, every great moment of God that I've ever experienced personally, has always been preceded by knee-buckling fear. Think about my salvation. The night that I professed faith in Christ, I had to stand in front of all of my peers that believed that I was a leader in the youth group. To tell them I was a fraud. And the only reason I had not done it sooner is because I was afraid. Think about my call to ministry. I didn't speak well. I didn't talk plainly. It didn't make sense to me. That's not what I wanted to do. Think about my call to Iron City Baptist Church. Y'all, it made no sense. It still makes no sense. I'm still convinced that one day I'm going to pull into the parking lot on a Sunday morning and nobody else is going to show up because you finally figure out I don't have any idea what I'm doing. It's, it's illogical. It's unsensible. 
But it's been the greatest movement of God in my life. And God has used it more to mature me as a man. And God has used it more to mature me as a preacher. And to mature me as a pastor. To mature me as a husband and as a dad. And so I look back and I think that how many more times I have cowered down. And how many more times I have backed down. Iron City, let us be a courageous church. Let us be a courageous church. What good to the gospel is a weekly gathering of cowards? Let us step up, Iron City. Let us go to the ends of the earth. Have you ever thought it odd that Jesus in the Great Commission tells us that he'll be with us always? Why does he tell us he'll be with us always as he's leaving the earth? Because he knows it's scary. And he knows that it's terrifying. And he knows that our tendency will be to cower down. And so he says, church, go. Go to Swaziland. Go to the ends of the earth. Go to the end of your street. Go to your job places. Be light. Be salt. And know I am with you. I am with you. Be courageous, church. I am alive. I defeated the grave. I am with you always. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, let it not be said of us that we are cowards. Let it not be said of us that we are too complacent. Let it not be said of us that we are too comfortable. Instead, let us be the first to go. Let us carry the torch. Let us run to the front lines of the battle, knowing that deliverance will come either way. That God is sovereign and God is glorious. And he will work all things together for the good of his people and the destruction of his enemies. Let us go and let us go with him. If you think for one second that I am calling you to be courageous for courage's sake, you are misunderstanding what I'm saying. I am not saying to you this morning that you need to look deeper within and find some courage or resolve that you're missing right now. I'm not saying that you need to look deeper within and try to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and, and be somebody that you're not. And I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying not to look at yourself anymore. I'm saying instead to look at the Lord that is seated on the throne of which no authority can triumph. I'm saying to look to God and to know that he is alive and that he will back up his church and that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. I'm saying stop looking at yourself. Stop backing down on your own weakness and instead know his sovereign strength. Iron City, we can be courageous because our God is alive. Let us step up. Let us go. Let us be. Do you notice how Haman dies? It's not by accident that the author points this out to us, is it? Haman had built gallows 75 feet high. Now, when you're thinking of gallows, you're thinking of the way that we do gallows. And how do we do gallows? You, you kind of go and you have this big wooden thing and the, you come out and there's a rope that dangles and we put the noose around our neck and that's how you're hanged. That's not how they did it in Persia. The gallows that they're speaking of instead is a stake that goes straight up and it's pointed at the end. And what they would do is they would take and they would impel the person. And so the stake would run all the way through them. And then they would just leave them there to bake in the sun as evidence of why you should not do whatever that person did. And this one was 75 feet high. Mordecai, he had built it so that he could humiliate Mordecai in his own backyard. And instead, where does Haman end up? On top of it himself. You see, what we need to understand is that what that gallows represented was everything that Haman had become. Haman, his life work was evidenced in the height of the gallows. 
He had the prominence that would allow him to build it. He had the money that would allow him to afford it. He had the power that would empower him to punish the people that he wanted to punish. All of it manifested in the 75-foot stake in his backyard. And on his own gallows, by his own sweat, his own blood, his own tears, he was hanged. He was executed. And I want you to understand this morning, all of us are doing the same thing. We are born into this world as self-righteous people. Thinking somehow we can earn our way to the top. That somehow we can earn our approval from God. That somehow we can be good enough, be uh, be me- measure up in some way to his holiness. But instead, as we build our life in this world, all we are doing is building higher the gallows from which we ourselves will hang. The higher you build your life in this world, the further from the ground your feet will dangle when, it's, when you are hung on it. No, all of us have one of two options on the gallows that we build with our own righteousness. Either we die on them, Or Jesus dies in our place on them. This morning too many of you are trying to make it through this on your own strength. And you're trying to be self-righteous. Do you have any idea how offensive your attempts of righteousness are when they're aimed at a truly righteous and infinitely righteous God? No, this morning stop trying to be righteous. Stop trying to be religious. Stop trying to measure up. Stop building your own gallows and proclaim the cross of Christ. Chapter 9, verse 1 of Esther says this. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The main theme of the book of Esther is reversed outcomes. That by God's power, because of God's sovereignty, through God's grace, what seems apparent in the world can be flipped upside down for the glory of God. How many of you this morning need a reversed outcome? How many of you are headed in one direction and you desperately need by the grace of Christ to turn and go the other direction? How many of you are are headed hellbound on your own gallows and this morning you need the cross of Christ to reverse your outcome? How many of you are living lives that are, are cowardly, living lives that are faithless, living lives that are shallow and this morning God is calling you to be courageous in your faith, to be courageous in your living? This morning... By God's grace, because of God's sovereignty, it can be so. Your outcome can be reversed because our God is the living God of history. Pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we have so learned of your sovereignty. We have so learned of your providence. So learn of your might and your power and of your love and commitment to your people. Lord, this morning we just rejoice that we can sleep well because our God is alive. We don't have to execute vengeance and justice because our God is just and our God is sovereign and our God is supreme. Lord, please forgive us for our cowardice. 
Forgive us for our weakness. Forgive us for how many times we back down rather than step up. Lord, let us see our moments of fear as opportunities of faith. Call us as a church. Call us as a people to be a courageous church for your name.